Morning. Y'all look around. Look at, no, look around. Everybody's like, I know you guys aren't like a totally compliant, obedient church. Look around you. This is, this is crazy. This is August. This is not supposed to happen. So if we need to throw up some more rows back there, one of y'all back in the back who uh, know how to do that, throw up some, throw up some chairs. Super good to be back at ANC. Super good this morning because uh, you guys, it almost happened this week. It almost happened. I almost lost my wife and two of my five kids. And it, we have had a, uh, it was an accident, a T-bone accident in an intersection, completely the other person's fault. And it was a combination of the hand of God, Honda engineering, and her last nanosecond instinct to pull away from the the, the hit and go in the direction he was going. And had it not been for those two things, I'm telling you, somebody would not walk away from that 45 mile an hour, no break sort of hit. So we are sober this week and grateful. So hug your babies because it goes like that. Out of the way. Okay, we got to get that out of the way. Um, man, Jen interviewed Brene Brown this week, you guys. Don't put this on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Can't even believe it. We're all holding our breath and watching that book rise. And it, I don't know who's after Brene Brown. Jesus? Maybe Jesus. You land that interview. You land that interview. I'm telling you what. You, some of you guys have no idea what we're talking about. That's so cool that you're here, not because of all that. But man, I'm so glad if you are because of that. So welcome to ANC. Glad you found us hiding out here in Shady Hollow. In this cool little neighborhood that doesn't match us. Right? It's like uh, driving a Jeep down Madison Avenue. It's like, okay, but it doesn't really match. It doesn't go there. So glad you found us. Uh, we have super cryptic signage on purpose and virtually no Facebook presence that tells you what's going on here. You found us, so that's great. We're glad you made it. If you like us now, you'll love us in the fall. Hang on, because these are some hot, hot days. I think this is how God slows down the mass migration from L.A. to Austin. He does it with August. So, yeah, there's no ocean breezes here. You know you can make peace with the heat and just go out and just go, come on, son, give me what you got. You can do that. Um, and that's how we get through it. But we are in the middle of a, uh, a trek through the book of Galatians. And uh, by the way, next week we have a treat, a real treat. I have to promote this. You guys, we don't just say we are about egalitarianism and supporting women in ministry and leadership. We are about women in the pulpit and not just Jen. Anybody's about Jen in the pulpit. But we are about supporting, and I mean this, we're about supporting women as they seek, you know, God's, God's open doors to lead. And so we have Laura with us next week. Laura is, I'm so fired up. I'm going to be so nervous for her. I've been texting her, driving her crazy. Is there anything I can do? What do you need? What do you need? She's like, I got this. I'm in Colorado. Chill out. I'm like, oh, I'm so nervous for you. This is not an easy pulpit to jump into. It took me a couple years to figure out how to navigate this space. But I know that Laura, right. I'm setting you up. I'm setting you up. Let me just say this. If anybody I know will just do her, it's Laura. So we got this. We got this. But excited about that. Um, So we're in Galatians. I have a lot to cover. It's been, I don't know about you, but it's been a very reflective week, partially because, you know, midweek we had this near tragedy, but also because of what's going on around us. And so we're going to jump in the, I was tempted. We're going to jump into it. I can't say that. Only Trey can cuss in this pulpit. (laughs) We're going to jump into it um, because it's, it's all around us right now. So we're in the middle of some of the most racially charged days 
in our time. You can look back and you can do like I do and wish that in the 60s I would have been down south walking and marching and doing the things that were going on. That, didn't, that, that wasn't our window, but we have one upon us. And let me just tell you about what we're seeing right now. This is, this is as charged as it needs to be. This is incredibly important. You guys know the news. Hopefully you hear it. Hopefully you don't just watch it. Hopefully you actually hear it on the radio too, because I'm telling you, it's a little better. You don't have to watch all the commercials and stuff. But you know what's up. You've seen the sort of embarrassing virus that has crawled out of the closet, off the internet, into our city streets. They've found each other. This hasn't happened in a couple dozen years like this, but you've seen it. And if you're anything like me, you can probably look back on your life and account on a single hand the times that from the pulpit, somebody jumped into current affairs. It's too risky. They teach us in seminary not to do this, but we're going to do this. If you, so just know that I know that some of this is not going to land on soft places in your ears, and that's going to be fully okay with me. This church, listen to me, was birthed nine years ago with an intrepid spirit of experimentation. We weren't sure, or they weren't sure, when they gave birth to it, what was it going to be. When it took off its diapers and started to walk, was it going to be a nonprofit or was it going to be a church? So experimentation is kind of in the DNA. It's in the RNA of this place. We still don't shy away from taking risks when speaking up on, on, on issues, specifically when it relates to the oppressed. Okay, so we're not going to shy away anymore on this issue. So hang on. You're not going to like some of this. I'm just going to ask you to sit through it. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable in some ways. In fact, in some ways, the discomfort is going to come because I'm going to ask you to rethink some of the narratives that you were taught were unquestionable. They were concrete. It's the way things have been. It's what happened. It's what is. I'm going to ask you to question some of those narratives. Why? Because this is what the gospel does. It transplants narratives with the narrative of Christ, the remaking of the new creation, first glimpsed in the man, Jesus Christ. It offers us a chance to put our other narratives aside and say, that's what life looks like. So we're going to go there. I'm going to get excited. I'm probably going to sound like I'm angry. I'm not angry. With as many kids eating at the dinner table as I have, you have to sound shrill in order to be heard. To cut through that noise, I'm telling you what, it's like stereo sound stories. Somebody starts a story and it's coming at me in four voices from five directions. So you have to, so please don't misinterpret. I am fired up though, I will not apologize. I'm fired up about this. So let's read. Let's read. Uh, We're in Galatians, perfectly situated, I think, for the conversation that's upon us. Galatians chapter five. Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out that you will be, that, that you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Competing narratives. Competing narratives. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want, right? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray, because we're going to need the Holy Spirit this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be with us, to walk with us, to speak to us, to comfort, and even to anger us this morning in the ways that would bring glory to your kingdom and your work in the earth. In your name we pray, amen. 
Now, we've said this a few ways already over the last few weeks, but Paul was under a serious and sustained accusation by good people that the gospel he was preaching was going to set people on a trajectory that was going to become willy-nilly, crazy all over the place, wheels off, libertinism, if you will. He was under this accusation. Paul was having to justify, how could he reduce the gospel to this one thing? You are free. Now be free and fight for your freedom. How could you do it? How can you move away from the rigors and the laws and the rules? How can you move away from circumcision? You're going to ruin the whole thing. He's under this sustained accusation. That this freedom was going to set people free in inappropriate ways. You know what's interesting? This little church on the south side of Austin is under, has been, and is under that same sort of arms crossed. You've blown it now. Now the wheels are coming off. That's why this is so connective for me. This book matters to us right now. Here's the bottom line. We are free already. It's done. Never again to resort to the rigors and performance that institutional religion provides us in order to please God and feel good about our worth and our status. Paul says all of that is junk. It's the freedom in Christ. But here's the catch and here's the pivot and here's where it's going in chapter 5. But don't confuse freedom with the freedom to do whatever you want. That is a totally different thing. Let's be very clear. His category or his definition of freedom is going to take our breath away. If freedom, like willy-nilly, go crazy, do as you please, is what you're looking for. You see, in chapter 5, he's going to offer us a definition that's going to actually make us a new kind of servant. It's going to actually, and I hate to use this word, but I think it works in this context. It's going to be a new kind of slavery that he's offering us. Now, is it freedom? It is freedom. But it's not freedom to do whatever the flesh wants. To be precise, it's actually freedom to be in bondage and to embrace the law of love, which trumps the law. Paul offers us something completely different. See, at the beginning, he's beginning to make a major shift. It's a bit of a pivot. He's going to turn the direction. He's going to go super concrete. He's telling the Galatians, fight for your freedom. Don't give it up. Don't go back. Don't go back. Fight for it. But he's going to turn in a direction that all of us are going to have to wince. When Paul makes lists, guys, we're cooked. There is no way to get through a list of Paul and feel smug. I'm telling you, it's going to either pressure, pressure your pocketbook or, the, or your nose that's in the air or who you think is right or how you do race or who you accept. No way to walk away from Paul's list. It's like a grocery list. It's got it all. He's going to go that direction and he's in the middle of that pivot right now. Freedom, Paul will say, just like faith, is useless unless it finds its way into something concrete. Freedom if it doesn't find a body to live itself out, is worthless. It's nothing. In fact, unless it finds a way into the world of bodies and politics and economics and how societies are organized and propped up and morally justified, if freedom doesn't find its way into that space, it's not the freedom he's talking about. It's just the freedom of the soul or of the head. And so we're going to jump in that other direction today because soul freedom and head freedom demands that the body be set free. It's misguided to add anything to the work of Christ, like circumcision. But equally, it's dead if we do not allow freedom to have its full reign. Okay, so there's no such thing, and you know this, of a disembodied spirituality. That that means there's no such thing as anything spiritual that doesn't have something to do with something concrete, earthly. Think about it. Hands, feet, right? If it doesn't impact the real world, then it might be related to what we have said was true about Christ, 
in those institutions we build around him, but it has nothing to do with the way of Jesus Christ because that was about earth and dirt and wind and water and wine and boats and fish and grapes and goats and sheep. And you know where I'm going. Here's the bottom line. The kingdom of heaven is about bodies and money and wine and water and sheep and fish and eating and resting and birthing and dying in the transformation of all of that stuff. That's what the kingdom is about. It's the earthly, the stinky, the temporal stuff, the stuff that's passing, the stuff that's changing. Remember, Jesus was the overlap of the eternal and the temporal, right? He was the invasion of time by the eternal, He was the walking picture of the future of everything material. He was mud and he was magic. He was heaven and earth. He was the elimination of the boundary between the two things. He was the drying up of the Rio Grande. He was the obliteration of the wall between spirit and flesh. He dissolved it all, introduced a new narrative. You see, the spiritual work in the world doesn't amount to much if it doesn't trace its way back to the physical material world in which we live and breathe. Why am I setting this foundation? We're going somewhere with this idea of freedom. And your feet are going to hurt when you go there. And you're going to have to take a risk to be there. And someone's going to tell you, don't go. It's dangerous. Stay home and watch on TV. There's your little hint. If one, of Paul's, one of Paul's more poetic philosophical moments, he borrows from the, from the prophet, or from, I'm sorry, from the, from the philosopher Epimenides. I don't know. He pens these words, and they're so beautiful and they're so simple. He says, of Jesus, borrowing a quote, he says, in him we live and, ha- and move and have our being. In Jesus, it's not about just going to heaven. It's about the transformation of the world, you guys. It's about the transformation of the world. Ironically, people of faith have always struggled to understand this. It's the connection that we don't get. It's much easier to set hearts free and move on with the next campaign to set more hearts free. It is way more complicated to set peoples free in society, to speak up for the oppressed, to release them from the captivity of our economic systems and our ambitions. That's much more difficult. And this is why I'm so grieved this week, so frustrated. How are we still here? How are we still in the middle of this argument? How how have we not moved the ball? The kind of persistent evil that manifests itself as white supremacy, as nationalism, as racism, as xenophobia, as fear, as economic centrism, that kind of persistent evil is still among us. And it has a deep and sordid history in our past. Just like we've advanced the torch of freedom in some ways, we've reinvented evil in other ways. Why? Because we assign it to something so fickle as the level of melanin in your skin. And we attach an accompanying theology that justifies that. And it's time to speak to that. If I got to go to work at Starbucks because I preach my way out of a job, I think I'm willing to do that. We were willing to do that last fall anyway when we thought we wrecked the church. And y'all are still coming. And you're bringing friends. And there's people I don't know yet. Drives me crazy. I want to freeze time and meet everyone. I met Kristen, Becky, Kristen, and Mary. How about that, girls? Ha ha! And Marusha. How about that? Marisha Coffee, so I don't have a terrible, you know, it's the whole 30 memory. It actually works. I think I know my kid's birthday. So if I could be so bold, hang on, this is not going to feel good. I would argue that this great country was founded on a very limited understanding of freedom. This is the problem, problem that, 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 that Galatians is written about. This is what Paul is addressing. It's a limited understanding of freedom. America was founded, at least in part, 
on a deeply flawed teaching of the gospel that taught that the heart and the body were to be held separate if you were not a white male. Hang with me. If you're a white male, it's all about the gospel, but if you're a female or you're Arab or you're Catholic or you're Jewish or God forbid you're Native American or you're African American, don't connect those two. Don't ask for freedom, freedom of the body. Don't even go there. That meant you were out and we were in and somehow God had ordained this, right? As you know, Paul has something to say about this. And we're gonna turn back to his words after we do a little bit of history. So I've been doing some reading. I took some courses in seminary that blew up my mind. And I've been digging back through some of that stuff. Here's what I propose. Now, now granted, I always offer a disclaimer. This is not the only take. Mine is not the only version. This is not the authorized final revelation. Here's what I'm yearning and churning with. If you don't agree, email me. We can talk this out. But here's what I think I'm seeing. The story of America is an economic story. It's an economic story. This is a political experiment undergirded by an economic ambition justified by some very strong theology. And I want to talk about that theology a little bit. Maybe let's talk about this increasingly over time. Can't argue with the economics. I barely passed that class, right? I I took a lot of classes on political science because when I was running from God, I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. I have no idea what that was about. Thank God my wife was worth following during those years because I would have ended up being some... I don't even know. But it's the theology that concerns me because it's still present in our churches today. You think I'm wrong. Remember the first rallying cry that called us all to one unified action? What was it? No taxation without representation. That is fiercely economic. That is an economic thing. It's a great work of revisionist history to make the founding of this country purely or even, I would say, primarily about the pursuit of spiritual freedom. It's economic, you guys. It's economic. We've wrapped our economic interests in gospel terminology and we use words like liberty and freedom and those come from scripture and they're designed to make us vote and make us do things and it's our language because we're the people of God and they've been co-opted to get us behind a political, economic preservation of institutions that enriched a particular group of us. Sorry if that's too forward. We don't soft land things around here. If you were one of the ones who was out, these inalienable rights were not for you. And I wonder if the world understood in the late 18th century the deep and abiding contradiction that we were institutionalizing, which is why to this very day we do not have this right. Survival on this continent required industry, and it required industry fast. You guys know that tobacco saved the colony of Jamestown? Did you know that? And a hybridized version of tobacco from Jamaica was the only reason it survived the second winter. Go back and read your history. They needed industry quickly. Massive industry requires what? An almost inexhaustible amount or supply of cheap or free labor. Like tobacco and cotton in the South, these are what I'm talking about. And they were willing to do whatever it took to turn a profit, even if it meant espousing some horrific views and some horrible biblical theology to justify it. The bloodiest war we ever fought in this country was fought over the preservation of that economic system, fighting to keep that cheap labor in place so we could turn a profit on these products. The generals that fought on the side of the South are heroes to some, and yet they represent to others the worst kind of evil because it was theologically justified. And we're still not over the heightened emotions surrounding this. 
And if you don't understand that this is still around us, I don't know how to help you wake up. I really don't know what to tell you. I spent a good portion of this week reading back through our history as a nation from a particular perspective, from the voice that was voiceless for so many years, the African-American voice. I found myself drawn to the writings of, the, of, a, of a scholar named Dr. Albert Rabateau. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Supremely eloquent. He is the Henry W. Putnam Professor of Religion and Chairman at nothing less than Princeton University, Chairman of the Department of Religion. In an article he wrote for Christianity Today, now I don't read that very often, but I read it because he wrote an article there. It's, it was called Slave Religion. He puts his finger on something so dark and so sinister. I wish it wasn't part of our history. I wish I didn't have to talk about this. But it's there, and it's part of our story, and I think we need to face it. You see, the first solution when bringing this labor to the new world was to not let the gospel get anywhere near it. Don't let the gospel be preached around these people because they're going to know that when the heart is set free, the body's going to want to be free too. So the first move was don't let them hear the gospel. Not that difficult because they didn't speak English, right? Couldn't read the Bible. I wish it was just that simple as simply prohibiting access to the preaching of the gospel around the ears of those who were chosen by God to serve. I wish it was that simple, but it's far worse. That would be an easier narrative to swallow because you could say, well, you know, but a total ban from the connection to Christianity was just the first step. Step number two was, you know what? Let's hire preachers to preach the wrong gospel. Let's hire plantation preachers to preach the word in such a way that they never make the connection between the soul and the body, that they never understand that it's about redeeming the cosmos, transforming everything that is, that they only think it's a way of thinking your way into heaven. That gospel is most of what is preached in the streets today. Nobody worries about their pocketbook because, oh, it's just the gospel. This is spiritual freedom Jesus is talking about. You know what? That's a particular angle. Let me read to you some words that have been preserved in the research of Dr. Rabateau. This is, this is a, a, a story of a, of a former slave named Wash Wilson. He writes this. I'm going to try to get through it. It's written the way he would speak it, and I'm not terribly good at that. But he, was, he said this. When the Negroes go around singing, steal away to Jesus, that means they're going to be a religious meeting that night. You see, the masters don't like them religious meetings, so us naturally slips off at night. Down to the bottoms or somewhere, sometimes us sing and pray all night. Another quote, slaves frequently were moved to hold their religious meetings out of, out of disgust for the vitiated gospel preached by their master's preachers. Lucretia Alexander explained what slaves did when they grew tired of the white folks' preachers. They'd hire black preachers to preach a neutered gospel. This is what Lucretia Alexander says. The preacher came and he'd just say, serve your masters. Don't steal your master's turkey. Don't steal your master's chickens. Don't steal your master's hogs. Don't steal your master's meat. Do whatever the master tells you. Same old thing all the time. Sometimes they would want a real meeting with some real preaching. They used to sing their songs in a whisper and pray in a whisper. And you know how the gospel becomes infiltrated in these people before they can read the Bible, the King James Version, in the spiritual songs. You wonder why this is so much a part of who they are? That's how they came to know Jesus. I'm getting fired up. I'm sorry. What's so amazing to me is that by the beginning of the Civil War, so 1850s, many of the slaves had adopted Protestant evangelicalism. Think of the irony. This is the great mystery of American history, if you ask me. How could approximately four million slaves find their way into a faith preached by the very men who enslaved their bodies and told them God wanted them to do that? 
How can this be? Some became Muslims, some became Catholics, but the vast majority became Protestant Christians like you and me. How? How does this happen? Imagine being violently transplanted from your homeland, West Africa, where your faith system is based on concrete, tribal, ancient things, dropped into a strange language on a strange continent with a Bible you could not read and actually finding the real gospel buried in the distortion that was hired to be preached to you on Sunday morning. Imagine the courage to speak prophetically back to the institutions of the South and the North that says, we demand to be free. Imagine that level of courage. Another quote from the article, on one Louisiana plantation, when the slaves would steal away into the night and hold their services, they would form a circle on their knees around a speaker who would also be on his knees. He would bend forward and speak into or over a vessel of water to drown out the sound. If anyone became animated or cried out, the others would quickly stop the noise by placing their hands over the offender's mouth. A description of a secret prayer meeting was recorded by Peter Randolph, who was a slave in Prince George County, Virginia, until he was freed in 1847. Here's what he says. The slave forgets all his suffering except to remind others of the trials during the past week, exclaiming, thank God I shall not live here always. Then they pass from one another, shaking hands and bidding each other farewell as they separate. They sing a parting hymn of praise. They would hide in the lowlands. They would hide in the woods. They would cover themselves in wet blankets to preach the word so they couldn't be heard, so it wouldn't drift along the breeze back to the house on the hill. Now, I'm not an idiot. This is South Austin, and I know this is the whitest city in Texas. Not the whitest, but it's the only city that's growing the way it is, and our minorities are not. I know this church is predominantly white. Look around you. I'm not an idiot. I know how risky it can be to speak up about current affairs and politics and such. I begged God to let me go a different direction. We're willing to take some arrows around here, though. I'm just going to warn you, because we will not be a silent church. Charlottesville is not that far away, you guys. Brian McLaren wrote from an eyewitness account. He was a couple of blocks from where the lady was driven over by the car. He says it's coming to every American city. The question is going to be on our table soon. Where will we be? Are we going to stay home or are we going to actually stand up? Brandon reminded us last week when he read from the letters of Dr. King that a silent white church is perhaps the most guilty party and complicit in the ongoing existence of this fierce and wicked institution that has been theologically justified. Now, you might say I'm going too far. Maybe this makes you feel uncomfortable. Does this challenge the cultural narrative that you have been taught? I know it does mine. Rabito, in a book he called, a more recent book called American Prophets, he borrows the definition from another man you need to know, Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He says, the definition of a prophet is anyone who is willing to stand and question the hegemonic narrative of a culture. Stand and willing to say, you know what? Founded on God? Mm, Only if you're a white man. That's the role of a prophet. You might even say, what's the big deal? There's evil on both sides. We've heard that this week, haven't we? Oh yeah, officer, I, I, was, I wasn't the only one speeding. Brilliant. You ever try that? That only works if you're a girl and you're about 16 and you're bawling. And you're crying. Yeah. Girls who cry get out of tickets. Girls, just so you know. I've never gotten out of a speeding ticket. Here's my, here's my thing. Here's my thing. Listen. This whole system was built on bad theology. I always want to question the historic theology that gives birth to systems that later are so full of cancer we don't understand. How can this be? I want to, I want to question that. And that, as I said two weeks ago, all of this is born in the minds of men who are certain they speak on behalf of God. And we've got to question this. 
You say, no, 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 no. This is biblical stuff. This is history. This is what I was taught. I know, I understand. Listen, it was right until it wasn't right and somebody woke up and said, that's wrong. And now all of a sudden we say, you know what? That is wrong. And we have to have that courage. Let me give you just one example because I know the clock is ticking. One example of the undergirding theology that held this all up that literally sets the columns of this nation in place. For evangelicals in the South, scriptural legitimacy actually mattered. So they wanted to be able to know this was sanctioned by God. And you know what? They found it. There needed to be a reason why the black race was chosen by God to serve the white race. They found what they were looking for in a cryptic little story in Genesis chapter 9. Maybe you've read it. Noah gets hammered. Apparently they were shiner in the Old Testament. And he's all sloppy in his tent. And his sons notice that he's in a dishonorable position and Ham walks in when the others back in. And for this reason, he's cursed. They call it the curse of Ham. Not like Ham we have on Thanksgiving. Ham, the person. One of, uh, one of the sons of Noah. This became a full-scale biblical doctrine that taught us that the dark-skinned man deserved the curse that Noah gave him. See, it was a curse based on acting dishonorably, and Scripture says that Noah cursed his son and said he would serve his two brothers. Therefore, God sanctions American slavery. Problem is, it's crappy theology. It's horrible biblical exegesis. It's totally cryptic, but that's where they hung their hat. You see, Ham shares some similarities to the word cham, which means hot or tropical, those from hot or tropical places, which we know that there is no biology of race, y'all. It's who's been exposed to the solar radiation the longest. Don't buy this thing that one race is supreme. No, they've been farther north for longer, for more generations. There is no genetic compounded difference between races. It's all social construction. It's bogus. And because of this confusion on the word cham and ham, they have, there has been for many, many years a theological argument that says they deserve their curse. Now, let me just ask you, pause. How many curses of sin have you come out from under because Jesus breaks the curse of the law and sets us all free? Why not that one? Well, because we need cheap labor. Oh, my God, I wish it wasn't true. I'm going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to get a call from Brandon tomorrow. No, I probably won't. If Jen's shaking her head, bring it on, Brandon. This whole system is built on economy. We're told it's built on spiritual freedom. It's built on some bad, bad thinking. What's my point? Freedom is provided in Christ for all humankind, no exceptions. The gospel does not set the heart free and leave the body in bondage. The gospel sets the whole person free. It will stop with nothing less. The shackles of slavery, the shackles of, of, of everything you can think of that hold us captive to earthly powers have been broken in the work of Christ on the cross. That is the trajectory. There is no division of body and spirit. There is no way to be free in your mind and remain in slavery in your body. It just doesn't square with the gospel. And here's the thing. And we're going to turn back to the text where Paul writes, freedom is the direction of it all. Christ is going to set it all free. Period. For all mankind. You add the gender, you add the color, you add the language, you add the era, you add anything you want. It's true for all mankind. Nothing less is good news. Sorry, welcome to ANC. So this is Paul's pivot. This is his crescendo 
with the Galatian church who had drifted from the gospel of freedom and added some things that we can do to feel good about being God's people. This is his climax. When compliance with the law is the burning concern and the purity in the gospel is the question, he offers this simple truth. We are not free to serve ourselves. We are in bondage one to another by a higher law, which is the law of love. We are indentured. We are enslaved to march, to fight, to advocate on the behalf of, to speak up for, to stop being silent about. Galatians 5.13 says, I'll just reread these words. It won't be on the screen. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Fight for your neighbor as yourself. Fight for their freedom like you fight for your own. This is the whole premise of the book. So here we go. It's time to stand up. It's time to stand up. We have proven how the wind of God can find this little church and get back in our sails when we do this. We've proven it this year. It's time to make a stand. And we will be accused for being to this and to that. It's time. Not to build the kind of church that Austin needs to come to on Sunday. I frankly don't care. It's time to take this church to the next level. What do we mean by that? By serving at a deeper, more convicted level what God is doing in our city and he is setting people free. And it's messy and it's sloppy and it's not happening within the walls of brick and mortar church all the time. In fact, almost rarely, but it's beautiful and it's kingdom and he needs us to engage it, not to build a church or to build an audience, but because he's up to something in Austin. I guess what I'm trying to say is that every narrative, every cultural story you've ever been told, every single artifact of your The pedestal you stand on, which is mostly white pedestal because look at the room, every single piece of that is going to be questioned by the gospel and is going to want to be transplanted with a new narrative, which is that God died for it all and he wants it all back. Power is undone under the work of Christ. Empire falls. Race dissolves. Institutions crumble. All of it. Your story, our story, my story, the whole human narrative as we glimpse the face and the heart of God in the man Jesus Christ All of it is realigned. It's not their situation anymore. You see, that's our complicity. It's not their situation. This is our situation. And every single human being deserves the freedom found in Christ. Every single one. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Maybe I could have just tweeted that. So much more fun to get up here and sweat. Here's my question. Where will you be when evil crawls off the internet and out of the closet under the streets of Austin, where will you be? Where are you going to be? When the shadows give birth to something that has been too afraid to come out in the open for the longest time, when it happens on our streets, where will you be? I've heard stories of groups of clergy who walked the line in Charlottesville between these angry sides that wanted to get at each other. I've heard stories of people who were told, don't go there, you will be hurt, who said, this is what the gospel looks like in Charlottesville, Virginia. Where will you be? Where will I be? Where will we be? Are we gonna lift them up in prayer? So gracious. I'll be praying about that, brother. So weak. So not the gospel. You see, there are enormous consequences when we redefine freedom as something that's either just for me or just for the head. 
enormous consequences. We literally give birth to societies that generations later look back and say, what went wrong? It's wrong in the DNA, guys, because freedom sets the body free for every man and woman on this earth. And we are people of freedom for everyone, body and soul. Can you receive that hard word this morning? Sorry about that. You get Laura next week. That's going to be like candy compared to this. Take a deep breath. Join me on your feet. Musicians, bail me out up here.